Hello there and welcome to episode 36 of Practically Ranching. I'm your host, Matt Perrier. Today we get to talk with Dr. Dan Thompson. Dr. Dan wears a lot of hats. He has a tremendous depth of experience in the beef community. He hosts the RFD TV show Doc Talk. He works with Iowa State University. He consults with feed yards and cow-calf producers through production animal consultation. Um, he consults with the Big Four Packers. He consults with McDonald's and Applebee's and so many others in the food end of the beef industry. He basically talks with folks from each and every segment of the beef industry. And as I listened to this conversation while posting this pod, I realized he kind of has an all-encompassing job description. Dr. Dan is an interpreter. He's a beef industry interpreter because if you haven't yet noticed, we don't all speak the same language throughout our supply chain, and we probably don't have much understanding of each other's perspectives. And I think this is why I've always been a Dr. Dan fan, because that's Basically, what we try to do here on Practically Ranching as well, connect the dots between the consumer, retail and food service, packer processor, feed yard, stocker, commercial cow-calf, and even into the genetic and seed stock producers. Now, as you've noticed in past podcasts, um, I jump around a lot, and so does Dr. Dan in our thought processes. So we cover a bunch of different topics in today's episode, but hopefully they all have relevance. Uh, we'll talk cattle health in the feed yard, the upcoming FDA rule changes relative to over-the-counter antibiotics. Uh, we talk about sustaining rural America's main streets and independent veterinary practices, farmers and ranchers. We cover Dr. Dan's recommended herd health protocols at the cow-calf level. And finally, we talk his one beef concept. We finished the podcast with some ways to get the most we can when marketing calves, and he uses a term that I had never heard, virtual integration, not vertical, but virtual integration through things like cooperatives and other marketing arrangements. It's a lot. It always is when hearing from Dr. Dan and maybe me, but I think you'll like this conversation with Dr. Dan Thompson, Beef Industry Interpreter. So I think the last time I saw you face-to-face was at a basketball game a year and a half or two years ago in uh, Hillsboro. Yes, yeah. We were watching the Riley County girls play, and I looked across there and saw a familiar face on their bench and and Jordy Nelson, and then you told me the full story that I think the whole bench and the scorer's table and everybody else was a Nelson as well, right? Is that what you told me? Yeah, the mom was keeping the books. Kelsey's the head coach, and and uh, it sounds like Jordy. They did it. Jordy coached one more year this year, but uh, I think that's it. Okay, kids, I didn't. kids are getting old enough that he just wants to watch. Yep. Well, we played Riley County early in the season this year, and um, Eureka's girls uh, beat them. But it sounded yeah. like this was the year to play Riley County early because they they got better and better and better through the through the season and end up yep. going to the state we watched, tournament. Uh, I went down to watch them in the state tournament and then watch the good. Eureka girls play at state. Um, that wasn't a good game to see us play. <laughs> that was a tough draw, man. They're yeah. So, good, so big. But uh, Cindy and I were sitting here and the girls made it, right account and made it to state. And all those girls that are playing were little girls in the stands when our girls were playing and their parents came. And I said, man, I said, we got to get down there. We got to support them. They supported us. And so – we bought a house back in Manhattan now. Oh, really? Good. Yep, yep. And uh, so I'm transitioning back to just full-time veterinary practice. Well, good for you. Good for you. Well, you've you've seen and done a lot through the years and um, always have always appreciated. We call this podcast Practically Ranching, and I would, um, I would call your teaching and, and work within the industry practically – practicing veterinary med i mean that's there's there's a lot of practicality that sometimes we miss in day-to-day business and whether it be animal health or vet or ranching or farming there's there's something to be said for being practical in those decisions and i, I think love I've always, the name of your 
podcast. Oh, good. Well, thanks. So. It's it has a lot of meanings uh, depending on who it is we're talking to or, or what day it is. But um, <laughs> yeah. So there's there's all kinds of topics. I guess first I want to let you introduce yourself um, and tell us a little of your history and and uh, what you do these days, and and then we can talk a little more topical. So tell us the story from then to now on Dr. Dan Thompson. Well, thanks, Matt. You know, I went through veterinary school and did a PhD in ruminant nutrition, wanting to tie together production and health um, and and kind of look at things more holistically. And um, really what I found out, what it did was it gave me an incredible network of people. And because I did my PhD down in West Texas at Texas Tech, did my DVM in in Iowa in the Corn Belt. And so, uh, and then I practiced in West Texas and and Southwest Kansas before teaching at K-State and taught at the veterinary school. So I feel very comfortable with my network of people from the Corn Belt to to West Texas in the beef industry. And really, I just kind of have been, been really blessed to be able to just connect people, connect dots, and, uh, and work in the beef industry. I taught at K-State for 15 years, uh, moved up to Ames, and I currently have a, a half-time appointment at Iowa State. Uh, and my other half is I'm the managing partner for Production Animal Consultation, which is a feedlot practice that covers roughly 30% of the fed cattle in the U.S. We provide veterinary oversight for. And um, we have 12 feedlot veterinarians, and we have expanded the pack into a pack network um, that is cow-calf practitioners. And we have 45 uh, veterinarians from Montana, Kansas, uh, Nebraska, South Dakota, North Dakota, Wyoming, Colorado. And those veterinarians cover around 1 million cow-calf pairs. And so it's been a lot of fun. Um, basically, as we see universities change, uh, and the ability to service uh, clients and to service veterinarians who service people in the trenches that have skin in the game. Uh, it has really opened some doors for us to do this in the private sector through education, research, uh, extension. And so that's what we're doing. I think that's pretty cool because as we see, whether you look at it from a cost side and a revenue side from the university system, their costs are going up just like ours, and at least their tax revenue is going down in nearly every place you go in any university. And I think from a, let's say, efficiency and and competition and, and just the nature of business compared to more of a university or, or public type setting, um, you can you can optimize some some competition and some drive and some funding mechanisms that I think maybe get stuff done in a more efficient manner when we team those public private partnerships. So that's that's a pretty cool way of doing it. On the feed yard side, um, I look at the way we manage and specifically vaccinate uh, calves at the cow-calf level today compared to 20 years ago, 40 years ago, 80 years ago. I don't think there's anybody in America who would say we give fewer vaccines and we do a poorer job of getting those calves ready to go on to the next phase. And yet, as we look at the data, as we talk to feed yard managers and consulting veterinarians like yourself that work with hundreds of thousands of feed yard cattle every year, the health isn't any better of these cattle today than it was 40 years ago, is it, in terms of morbidity and and even mortality? Um, Is that a fair statement? Yeah, I think that, I think we can, we have, we have seen a continual increase in death loss over the last 15 to 20 years. But I guess a couple things. I'll go back to the vaccines and on the cow-calf side versus the, the feedlot side. And, you know, we're just getting to the point now where people, when they say the cattle have had all their shots, it right. doesn't mean blackleg, right? Yeah, yeah, hopefully. Uh, you know, and, and that's what we used to fight is they said, well, they got blackleg, so they've had all their shots. Right. And so now people have really bought into vaccinating at pre-breeding or that, that, that branding vaccination. And then we see, you know, 
pre-weaning and, and weaning and, and getting that, that booster. Um, and we were using modified live five-way virals uh, in those calves. And, and we'd been clicking along pretty decently. One thing that I have just recently realized is that we've had a lot of these internasal products come out. Well, the internasal products, one thing I think is really important to understand does not contain BVD antigen. And so if, if it's not explained, and I've even seen veterinarians that are just replacing the injectable five-way with a internasal at branding. Well, if we do that and those calves don't get a, get anything else, the first time they'll see a BVD antigen is probably about the same time they're exposed to it in the feedlot. And, and so having an understanding that if you use an internasal on those calves at branding, you still need to give the injectable BBD vaccine is, I think, very, very important. So, so while we continue to vaccinate and that, uh, you know, it just gets back to being strategic and understanding what we're vaccinating for and making sure we get it, get it covered. On the feedlot side with the health, I think we do a better job with what we used to consider the, you know, managing the health on the front end. I think that continues to improve. We have some wrecks uh, out there that can be, you know, again, calves not exposed to BVD antigen. They come in, there's a PI in the pen next to them. There's a PI in the hospital pen. And here we go, right? Especially ranch fresh calves. If they haven't been exposed to BVD before getting to the, to the yard. Um, and then, uh, the other side of this is I challenged uh, feedlot guys to tell me what we have sat down and changed over the last 20 years and said, you know what, by making this change, we're going to improve cattle health. Hmm. I, I can't name one. Got to um, agree on what that is first, right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But I, but I get the guys that they come in there and they say, okay, we've, we've gone to two ration systems or we've, you know, some of the things that we feed, uh, whether it's beta agonist or, or even remensin, you know, we're approved off of what types of intakes art Ron's work in remensin and feed yards in the seventies was approved on 1975 Herefords at Eli Lilly's experiment station in, in Greenfield, Indiana. We got these cattle eating these huge intakes. We know that remensin can be cardiotoxic. Hmm. We've got other things like uh, labor issues. We can't find people to come work um, when they do come work and they quit. And now we have retraining and training and and inconsistencies in our health program, inconsistencies in feed delivery. Um, you know, there's just so much that goes into this health in feed yards and why we've seen some some creeping up of death loss that i think that that's that lends itself to more and more and, and how hard we push the cattle right we yep. we want to gain five pounds a day and have a and convert it five <laughs> so uh there may be more to it than this or that vaccine program uh when when there's that many things that are affecting the actual outcome which is the the health or lack thereof of these cattle it's it's not just the treatment or the vaccine protocol before they leave the ranch yeah you know it kind of goes back to what's your goal and what's your just like what you said we have to define the health i have no doubt that if you know when we go into some of these yards and their focus is low death loss and they change their starter ration they change the length that the cattle are on the starter ration they they quote baby them, they wind up having different results than yards that say, I want blue flames shooting out the back of these steers from day one. Uh, you know, they, there's just so much that, you know, if you run that pickup in the red line the whole way, uh, yeah. <laughs> what do we expect? <laughs> yeah. And that's a good point. I mean, everybody's after low cost of gain and, high feed conversions and, and uh, acceptable low feed conversions, depending on how you look at it, and high average daily gains. And, uh, yeah, there there is a cost to any of these decisions that we make, especially when you're dealing with antagonisms like health and production. So, yeah, yeah. 
along the lines of treating those cattle if and when they do get sick. Um, I continue to hear more and more chatter about uh, the FDA's rule change making essentially all over-the-counter antibiotics require a prescription just like so many of the ones did, you know, even feed directives and things like that. Um, and that's coming, what, this June? Is that right? Yep. Uh, yep. According to June the one. legislation. Yeah. So how does that affect? And, and if you're just Joe producer out here, um, should you be concerned about this or what steps do we need to take to prepare and, and obviously do what's within the law and do it right, both by the law, but also by the cattle? Yeah, the first thing is, is that everybody should have a veterinary client patient relationship, right? We did it with the feed directive. We've done it with the modern antibiotics today. Um, the, the, the only thing that's going to happen, really, that's going this isn't going to be a big deal. The thing that's going to happen is that on June 20 something, a weekend, you're going to have a foot rot steer <laughs> and you're going to go to Orsland's. And there's not going to be any LA 200 or biomycin on the counter. Right. And you're going to go up and I, I, I want to put a sign up at every <laughs> Orsland's and Fleet and Farm for all the young kids that are working there at the register to let you know this is not their fault. Okay? They did not make the call. Uh, but uh, but I, we know what when the, 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 the pinch point's going to be, right? right. It's going to be yeah. that, hey... Um, but, and the other thing is don't go stockpile LA 200. I've yeah. heard that too. Like there, I mean, if you're banking on LA 200, your veterinarian should be on the farm, knows your health. They'll write you a prescription. The prescription will be able to cover all antibiotics. And so if the route truck comes by or you go into the clinic, it isn't like the vet's going to have to come out and treat every animal. You can still order your antibiotics, have case definitions, have treatment protocols. And I think it'll, it, it, the only thing you're going to do is you're just moving tetracyclines and penicillins into the class of the macrolides and other things that we have to have prescriptions for today. Yeah. And, and that's, I think, what has to be driven home. I got the opportunity to talk with a college group yesterday at uh, in Butler Community College, and that was one of the first questions. What are we going to do about this uh, this ban on antibiotics and and that was my response i said well actually my first response was wait till next wednesday because you're going to hear dr dan thompson give the real answer <laughs> and luckily you said what i said i think the pain and the shift happened with the first round of this when people either couldn't go back buy a bag of ariamycin to put in with the feed or even before that, couldn't get a bottle of, you name it, Drax and New Floor, whatever the case may be. Um, and I think that probably, now, I don't like the way that it came about. I don't like that this was something that government's heavy hand said, you have to do this. But the truth of the matter is, it was probably something that we as an industry should have been doing all along. But the positive outcome of that rule, the first one, was that people who may not have had a good relationship with their veterinarian had a reason to do so and hopefully not just for the vet's sake but the rancher's sake too that turned into a better relationship when they had a problem they could call somebody and and like you said they they don't have to come out every single time you have a sick animal and make you a new script it's not like going to the human health world where uh you that you have to be seen to get this antibiotic um it it could be even a couple times a year, you know, checking in and seeing things. And, and that always ends up with a better relationship, better communication, better way of both of us doing business. If we're, if the only thing the veterinarian is good for is writing the prescription. Yeah. We have a problem in veterinary medicine. Yep. And yep. so what I, my hope is, is that this will help people, you know, develop parasite control programs, herd health programs. Uh, synchronizing cows, getting cows bred, tightening up your calving interval, adding value to your herd through, we have, I mean, veterinarians are sitting there saying, Hey, I'd, I'd like to help. I'd like to be involved. But if all I'm going to do is be there on Saturday night when it's snow blowing down your neck and, and doing a C-section, 
and then writing a script, um, we're going to lose food animal practitioners. The sustainability of, of, of those veterinarians in the communities hinges on us being able to do, do things more than just, just, just be a script bunny. And, and I'll tell you, when I hear people who have really good rural mixed animal practices, uh, some of the veterinarians aren't happy about this either. They're like, I got to go to the farm. Uh, you know, yeah. I could yeah. spend, I could do three spays yeah. and, and make, you know, six, $800,000. And so, so that, you know, I think it's going to be a learning process and, and I hope that it's not just the route truck dragging a veterinarian, a retired veterinarian around, uh, the country. That's not hmm. good for our I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I know, um, we're fortunate to have a former student of, of yours as our, uh, veterinarian here in Eureka, Dr. Kaylee Fitzmorris. And, um, I called her before this podcast and said, which, which stories can you tell me on uh, Dr. Dan that'll, uh, <laughs> that'll stymie him. And she was pretty tight lipped. So you all, you clearly trained her well. Well, I just would, I, I knew she was from Fredonia originally. Right. And, uh, when she'd walk down the hall, I'd just call her the Fredonia Flash as, as she was in vet school. <laughs> She's a tremendous veterinarian and, well, and just, my goodness, you couldn't ask for a better person. Yep. Yeah. We're very fortunate to, to have her and she continues to expand that practice. And, um, yeah, it's, it's once you have a good vet in your community, you forget how many folks don't have that and and that's a challenge i mean when we whether we're talking about getting a prescription for antibiotics or actually getting the hands-on work done is the lack of food animal veterinarians out here in rural america and you don't have to go any further than the campuses and i assume that you've seen this on at least a couple that you've been involved with um at least for a little while now maybe there's been a renewed interest or at least some lip service paid to it but for a little while um it was all about those small animal veterinarians and training those because that's where the money was. And, and um, even at some of our land grant schools and things like that. Uh, but hopefully that's changing because they're, they're a, a very necessary part of our business. Yep. It's all about, it's, it's so important, not only for, when you look at the, the grander scale of the economic uh, impact that the beef industry or, or, our agriculture industry has on our entire uh, country's economy. Right. Serving agriculture serves and keeps main streets open. And, and that's what's, that's what we have to, you know, I was raised in a town of 250 people. My granddad started our clinic in 1938 and dad joined it in 67. And I just had a daughter graduate vet school. She's practicing over uh, great Bend, Kansas. Um, you know, it's, 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 it is an essential part of, of places where there's cows. Yep, for sure. So your daughter is a fourth generation veterinarian? Yep, yep, yep. That's yep. got to be pretty rare, right? <laughs> I, I think so. I, I don't know. I, honestly, we just uh, hadn't really thought about it besides just that's what we do. And then our oldest daughter, Kelly, married uh, Lucas Mater. He they live there in Rose Hill. He's a veterinarian. I'll be darned. And so I was like, quit it. Okay, we need, <laughs> we need, Lucas is great. Don't get me wrong. But we need a mechanic. We need an accountant. We need, we need so, cash flow. Yeah. We need, yeah. This thing is, this is going backwards. So uh, any rancher or farmer can relate to multi-generation businesses and not being able to draw that line very definitively between business and family at the dinner table or anything else, as wild as some of dad and my discussions get about things that we think is normal at Christmas dinner, I can't imagine what four or five veterinarians sitting around the dinner table at the holidays might conjure up. Yeah, there's a few uh, bad abscess stories. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I hope nobody's listening to this right before lunch. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. So back on the vaccine deal, and, and you always, whether I hear you on Doc Talk or at a lecture or anything else, you always 
end it with consult with your local veterinarian. But if you're my local veterinarian and I'm a cow-calf producer in the High Plains, wherever, if you can just in generic terms without, you know, naming products or whatever else, what would you say is generally the ideal uh, vaccination protocol from, let's say, from birth to 60 days weaned calves? What would you tell somebody to give? So the first thing is, is when the calf hits ground. All right. So day one, day two. Yep. And the only two things I consider at that time are black leg, you know, clostridial. If a person has a farm or ranch where we've had black leg issues and I'm, I'm, I, you know, and that's the reason why I consult your local veterinarian because mm-hmm. different regions of the country have different uh, types of, of black leg, uh, exposure. Sure. The other thing is, is that would be probably the only time I would consider an intranasal vaccine. And the reason why we look at the IBR vaccine at that time, um, you know, some thoughts on is that if I give an intranasal, the colostrum intake or the, the immunity from the colostrum will not neutralize the vaccine. If I give them an injectable, pretty high likelihood that it would be worthless. Right. Okay. And the reason why the black leg tends to work is very few cattle uh, carry clostridial antibody um, and it's a killed bacter, right? So it, it's, it's an antitoxin. So it's against, it's a vaccine against the toxin, not necessarily the actual black leg. So as, as we look at that, that's pretty important. After that, I'm going to leave those calves alone until, 60, 90 days of age. And that's when we get to the, to the branding, right? Pre-breeding, uh, branding, uh, time period. And if I haven't given a, a clostridial at the time of birth, I'll give one at branding. Um, I will also give those calves a, a five way modified live viral, um, that will have BBD type one, type two, IBR, BRSB and PI3. And so that's really my, my strength. And, and that's what I would do at that point in time. Some people will add a, a, a respiratory bacterium at that time. I don't really. Um, uh, I save that for getting up there to when we're two weeks pre weaning, right? So two weeks before we wean, um, I'll bring those calves in and I will recommend a last seven way. Uh, if we're going to castrate, we make sure we use an eight way um, because if we use a band because of tetanus. So we add the tetanus toxoid to that clostridial vaccine, whether it's at uh, branding or at whenever you whenever you decide to, to cut them. Before you uh, go further, I want to make sure because sometimes we interchange black leg, clostridial and seven way. But. All the same That's thing. the same shot. Yeah. Yep. I just, Sorry. I, I, I wanted to be sure that everybody that was listening got that sometimes. Okay. Yep. So second yep. round of black leg, clostridial, yep. seven, eight way, whatever you want to call it. And I would give them, I would give them the five way modified live viral. Okay. Second round of that. Yep. And then I would introduce, this is when I introduced the, the Mannheimian vaccine. Okay. And then obviously we would just, we would uh, repeat that without the, the, black or sorry the seven way clostridial slash black leg right uh, when we wean them i'm just going to revaccinate with the the five way modified live viral and the manheimia and um that should be they should be good to go from that point on and when you again we have all these different terms when you say manheimia yep. pasturella is quite often and you got what Pasturella multocida and so Manheimia hemolytica. Yeah, Manheimia hemolytica for us used to be Pasturella hemolytica. Right. It's renamed. Okay. And so I use that one. Uh, we I don't really use a lot of multocida. Uh, I don't use a lot of histophilus um, in these, but I will use Manheimia and. And somebody will argue with me because a lot of these clostridials will come with hemophilus somnus right. in there. It is not a hill for me to die on. 
uh, as Dr. Upson taught us, uh, above all, do no harm. There you go. And in the past, I would not recommend Histophilus or Haemophilus, whichever name you want to give it, but it's called Histophilus now. We used to call it Haemophilus because there were tremendous issues with endotoxemia because when these bacteria, we grow them up in these vats and we kill them. Well, their defense mechanism in, in our lungs or in our body is to, when they're killed, they give off these endotoxins. Right. So when we would kill them in the vaccine vats, they would give off these endotoxins. So they wound up in the vaccines. So when we would give them to cattle, we'd get what we'd call the vaccine sweat. Yep. And really what that is, it was endotoxin. And it increased their heart rate, increased physiological responses. And we could get them in these, these vaccines, so we wouldn't recommend them. I, I firmly believe that our manufacturers have cleaned all these vaccines up. Um, you know, the, the, the seven-way clostridial black leg vaccine i'll see i'm using them all together now so it doesn't get confused those used to be five cc's intermuscular yep. now they're two cc's sub q the haemophilus most used to have them. endotoxin right most of them um haemophilus is, is histophilus is is now cleaned up from the endotoxin so if i if i had to say it in a nutshell and just go back because I, I jump around a little bit matt but if i have a a, a black leg issue i would use the seven way clostridial black leg at, at day one. Right. Uh, I might use an internasal, probably, probably won't um, on a lot of cases. And then when I get to that two to three months of age, five-way modified live viral, uh, clostridial, seven-way, uh, and I would throw tetanus in there if we banned them. And then when we get to, and it can either be two weeks before we wean and weaning or at weaning and two weeks or three after. weeks after weaning. Okay. Mm -hmm. Depending on what you, what your production and, and what is easiest for you. Um, either way is fine with me. Um, I will vaccinate those calves. I will give them one more, uh, seven way clostridial black leg. I will give them a five way modified live viral and I will add the, the respiratory bacterium of Mannheimia hemolytica. Okay. okay. And then the revac at that time at weaning or two weeks post weaning would be with the five way modified live viral and the Mannheim. So that would be three rounds if you give that modified live to those babies, Brandon age. Yep. yep. Is that too much modified live? I don't, I don't is think there so. such a thing. I, I don't think so. Um, you know, with our, and, and it goes back to some of our pre-breeding, you know, on, on heifers. Sure. sure. We'll give those heifers two rounds of modified live prior to that, that first breeding season. But I, the, I'll never put another modified live in a cow after that. Okay. The, the, I, I reserve the right to, to do that while they're on the, the cow. Uh, and, and, you know, there's some concern about if I give a modified live or an intranasal to those calves that they're exposing the cows. Uh, maybe it happens on a fluke, but I, I'm not worried about that. And I don't think that's too many modified lives. Okay. So on your, let's move to the cows then on your annual cow vaccinations, what and when would be the ideal way to keep those cows immunity up? Yeah. So the, so the big thing is, is that when we're, you know, the, the difference between the heifers and the, the cows and the, the bulls and, and heifers, you know, you know, we used to do the two rounds of, of modified lives prior to breeding. But if I can do one 45 days, you know, prior to the breeding season, I will give those heifers a, a five-way modified live viral plus uh, Lepto and Vibrio. Okay. Okay. And so, so we've kind of backed away from the two doses to let's, let's get one dose in 30, 45 days prior to. Um, then once it's a bred heifer or it's a cow, I'm going to give them a killed five-way product for, for the viruses uh, plus uh, Vibrio and Lepto. Okay. And I'll do that at preg check time. Okay. Perfect. Perfect. And then of course, you know, depending on your area, whatever 
um, either insecticides, um, parasiticides, internal, external, the whole nine yards. That That's for sure a consult with your local veterinarian, I presume. Yeah, you know, the lice issues, depending on where you're at, uh, tick and fly uh, protection uh, are, are really, really important. Um, if you're having scour problems, uh, talk with your veterinarian because that's another optional vaccine um, where we have increased disease pressure that, that maybe we want to uh, vaccinate those those cows, you know, 15 to 30 days prior to calving with, you know, a scour guard or scour boss or guardian or endovac, something like that to help with, with scours to make sure we get that in the colostrum. But, um, uh, you know, I think that's, those are pretty, uh, pretty much what I would do on, on those types of things. And then obviously one of the things that we're dealing with too is, is making sure we rotate our parasiticides. Yep. Um, for internal parasites, because if we constantly apply pressure with an ivermectin um, and and if you have cattle coming in or coming out of your, the best way to have resistant uh, parasites is to haul them in on four legs and, uh, and introduce them to the herd. And so going between that white dewormer and fenbendazole and, and ivermectin and, and either switching them or doing them both at the same time is, is a really good practice. Okay, great. So you, um, a few years ago, gosh, it's probably been close to eight or 10 years ago, but uh, you got to come down to one of our ranch gatherings that we have for customers and neighbors and, and speak, and it was a fun panel discussion. And in that, and I've heard you use it before, you talked about what you call the one beef concept. Can you explain the origins of that and, and what the one beef concept means to you and why it's important to, to all of us in the industry? Yeah, well, and first of all, it that was so much fun. I still can see those kids around your pond fishing, and <laughs> uh, you did a, a cattle handling demonstration that was tremendous, and just the way you took care of your clients and, and brought in your customers and but your neighbors and your neighbors' kids and it, you know, I mean, you guys are a beacon for for what our industry stands for. And if anybody gets a chance, they need to stop by and see it. Um, but uh, you know, when we talk about the one beef concept, I, I work with cow calf operations to lots of feed yards. I consult all four major packers, and then I work with McDonald's. Uh, I just took a job as the lead uh, counsel for Dine Brands, which is Applebee's and IHOP, uh, and go out to their headquarters in, in Burbank, California. And and the thing that I struggled with was I kept thinking that, you know, we, we have so much competition in the beef industry. We compete at the commercial cow-calf level, right, and selling our calves. We compete at the seed stock level. We compete at the feedlot level. We compete at the packer level. We compete at the retail level. And it's the one and it's one protein source. That's that's within segment, let alone what we think across segments. And I look at our our true competition to me is poultry and pork and soy. All right. And they're all integrated. And so they own the packing plant, they own the, the sows, they own the, the pigs, they own the chicks, they own the, you know. And so what I had to start thinking is that when someone at a retail level makes a suggestion of something that we could do better on the farm, that I didn't react to, well, you know, you're just trying to make me do something. And, and when I started thinking about their concept of when they would say, if you do this, I could sell more beef in my store or my restaurant. And you're like, huh, if you sell more beef in your restaurant, uh, that means demand goes up and that means prices go up and we can get into all the, the sharing throughout the beef you know, supply, but we hope that it trickles back all the way to the ranch. And the last thing I'll say about this on the, the one beef concept is that in between the cow calf man and the consumer, Every business is a margin business. So when I hear someone say, well, I don't care about Thailand at the feed yard. I don't use it at the ranch. 
Well, if we lose tiling at the at the feed yard and we lose feed efficiency, one of two things is going to happen. Either the consumer will have to pay more for the cost of production of beef, or the cow-calf man is going to be offered less for their calves. So when we think about the one beef concept, we need to think about how things that occur in other segments have the impact on, because money is neither created nor destroyed. It's either going to move back to the origin of this, the, the, the resource that we buy, the calves, or it's going to be passed on in the sale of that product to the, to the consumer. And, and that's the reason why thinking that when we make changes, now we can't do outlandish things. And if we make changes, we need to be paid for it if it costs us more money to produce. But if we can sell more beef by making some of these changes, why wouldn't we? And number two, understanding that what happens in one segment can have an impact on the profitability in others is is a good mentality to have. And it, it is so ingrained in our psyche, these supply and demand fundamentals and what I would call supply side economics on the beef industry front that smaller herd numbers, smaller, whatever the case may be, throughput equals higher prices if you keep demand constant. And yet our last guest a couple of weeks ago was Greg Dowd. And, and Greg said, what industry have you ever seen that wants to be smaller and not expand their industry? And, and yet it is so tough in the commodity business, especially a commodity mindset that may date back a few decades too far in the past when we're now creating premiums for the good stuff and seeing demand continue to improve both domestically and internationally. Uh, it, it's still hard to get us ranchers to understand the fact that you can have higher prices, higher profit, and simultaneously higher quality if you have the right stuff to sell. And, and I, but I, I hear it. I am guilty myself of saying, hey, you know, increased cattle numbers, increased supply is going to equal less profit for the cow-calf customer. Uh, but it doesn't have to be like that. Greg and I have uh, been on, I think, the national tour together. I'll bet. I spoke with him in Florida, and then I yeah. just spoke with him in Nashville um, and, uh, we were kind of paired up. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, what he said was, you know, we'll eat what we produce. Right. At some price. <laughs> yeah. If we produce more, we're going to eat it all. The other thing that, that I have always said is the greatest distance between two people is the last three feet. Yeah, that's good. And the last three feet of our industry, whether we like it or not, are those retailers. And, and they shake hands with our consumer. We can go in for a day and cook steaks out in front of the grocery store and, and do some things like that. But we should be helping arm them because they're the ones that are attacked by the, the activists to, to make these outlandish changes. Instead of saying, well, McDonald's had never bought a steer from me. We should be saying, what information does McDonald's need to get these activists off their back about beef? And uh, because they are the front door to our industry. They're like that teenage kid working at Orschelin. The first time somebody shows up <laughs> to buy their bottle of LA 200. You're that exactly kid is, right. I've never thought of it that way, but you're, you are so right. Yeah, that, that kid is not going to be armed with the information to explain to me who doesn't understand why I can't buy it, but I know the person that's telling me this is that kid. McDonald's is the same <laughs> way. Uh, they, yep. And we want them to know what it is we do every day and want them to represent us. And we try through checkoff dollars and through telling our story and all these different things. But the fact of the matter is if we screw up or if we, because of our management practices or selection or whatever, don't give them a product that represents itself very well, um, they're not gonna be able to cover our tails. And, yeah. and that's what I think that, uh, that speaks to this one beef concept. You know, I'll add one other quote that I think supports this theory. You, you mentioned, 
how the consumer is the one that starts the dollar down through that and everybody takes their margin until what's left over gets to the cow-calf producer. Um, John Sticka, CAB president, years ago coined a phrase that um, I've used before, but I think it resonates well here. The only source of new money to the beef industry is that consumer. Everything else, we're just trading around. We're either... We're either stealing a profit from the guy or gal up or down the chain from us. We're trying to get more margin because somebody else got less. But if that consumer votes with a new dollar and spends more for that product, then we all get to share that dollar. But we've got to do something to earn it first. That, there's no doubt about that. That's a great quote. That's, you know, I think you're going to see some changes. I call it virtual integration. Hmm. Uh, not vertical integration in the beef industry. Um, just like what we saw with U.S. premium beef, uh, I think you're going to see things like that replicated um, where ranches uh, and feedlots and that can work with a, with a packer to develop cooperative systems to share uh, that, that value all the way uh, into the meat. Uh, and, and, uh, I think you're going to, I think you're going to see more cooperatives and things like that start to form where cow calf producers can own part of the co-op feedlots can own part of the co-op and, and then they have a, an expectation of delivery. Have you seen that happen? I mean, we, I, I grew up in the age of the alliances. I mean, they're in the mid nineties, early two thousands, everybody had an alliance and, that's kind of what that was. Now, most of those were owned by an entity, by a feed company, by a tag company, by someone who was selling a good or a service, and they needed participants, and so they basically subsidized the alliance to try to sell their product. What you're talking about is more of the old co-op model. Um, have you seen it work, and, and if so, how? Um, obviously, U.S. Premium Beef would sort of be like that, and it was obviously has been highly successful. What about others? Yeah. So moving back up here to Iowa, um, you look at West Liberty foods on the Turkey side, the, it is producer owned and operated. They own the turkeys, they own the packing plant. Um, they have a board of producers that, that runs it. Um, it works extremely well. If you look in the swine side, uh, you know, the cooperatives of people who own the sows, uh, they, they have models, prestige farms, uh, different things to that nature where they, they have sows. And, and then the, the people who finish the animals, like the, the corn and soybean farmers, they have hogs uh, on about every corner of every uh, half section because they want that deep pit manure um, yep. to knife right back into their corn and soybean ground. But they get about equal amount of money for taking care of those pigs for the, the company that owns the hogs. And so we see see some of these things happening. And, and recently, uh, I think you're gonna see like the packing plant in, in Amarillo that's going in. I think you're gonna see a, a feeder cooperative type ownership in, in that. Um, there's been announcement of a legacy beef co-op here in Southwest Iowa that Cattlemen's Heritage will own the packing plant but legacy beef uh, co-op will be where producers can own shares and they deliver an animal on that share. Um, and there'll be a producer led board of that for the operation. So I think you're going to see just like what we've seen in the, the poultry industry and the swine industry. Uh, some of that occur in the beef industry. It will be more of a cooperative because the land mass and, and things that it would take to, to make it virtually integrated, one company owning everything, I think would be next to impossible. But if we can do some things, you know, we've seen cooperatives like Beef Marketing Group mm -hmm. uh, in Kansas and U.S. Premium Beef, we use that as an example, but I think it'll just be taking it to the next level, even with the packing plants that are going into Missouri or, or whatever. But when we look at small producers, okay, and, and I had to get reacquainted to this when I came back to Iowa. Sure. These people don't even get a bid. Yeah. And you're sitting at the kitchen table with somebody that was used to getting three three bids on Friday afternoon where they hope somebody stops by this week. 
and they're going to have to take measures into their own hands and, and figure out a way to get bigger cooperatively <laughs> to stay in, stay in business. So it's, it's a matter of sustainability and survival. It's not necessarily, you know, a constant, if we weren't pushed to, to the, we have to do this to stay in business, um, it probably wouldn't have happened. So most of those examples you're talking about, and especially those just for clarity's sake, in Iowa, when you're talking about producers, you're talking about feed yards. And and maybe, I mean, small family farm feeders that yep. may or may not own the cows as well. We're all independent cattlemen, but there's yep. a certain subset of the beef industry that is the most independent, and that would be us cow-calf producers. And <laughs> There's no doubt. <laughs> I, I can say that because I are one. Um, and those those are the ones that it's the toughest, in my opinion, to get to cooperate, to coordinate, to collaborate. Because, you know, even if I see the data that says I can get this many cents a pound higher by selling load lots of calves, wherever I send them, um, and that means either expanding by buying a couple more sections of grass, which isn't happening on most family farms and ranches today um, or going down the road to my neighbor and saying, Hey, let's, let's get our cows calving at the same time. Let's buy some of the same bulls, at least similar genetics or breeds. Let's use the same vaccines and wean about the same time. That conversation is done before it even starts because I know my way is way better. <laughs> way better than his way um so that that one i, I think it's going to have to happen but that's sometimes where the the choke point is i think you got to remain and understand the sovereignty of the individual operation yep and there's a, a lot of different ways to raise beef cattle feedstuffs feeding systems vaccine protocols health protocols all, all of that i think it gets down to more of helping maintain the, the using a cooperative system is really the only way to allow people the freedom to produce animals the way they want right in the way that they want to they want to raise them but give them a, an outlet that if cattle are losing money on the hoof and they're making money in the beef they get a dividend check back from that cooperative of of making money on the the, the meat side Right. And and it's given them the same agreement as the small guy, the rancher or the independent cattle feeder, the opportunity to to instead of fighting price transparency and, and some of these things, don't hate the player, hate the game. Right. And so by coming together, you could put together some of the deals on the back side of the business that give you the same advantages of the things that we're trying to have transparency on. Um, because it helps everybody. It would help throughput in the plants. It would give them more saleable red meat that was more consistent. It would allow the, the feedlot or the, the cow-calf man to, to own those cattle all the way to slaughter and then share when times are tough on, in the live market, you get some dividend back in the meat and, and vice versa. So in your work with Applebee's, McDonald's, you know, those are, those are the big players. Um, but I think that they can tell us about some of these consumer trends. H how much premium, how much intrinsic value is there if they buy beef from one of these cooperative types that they can tell a story and say this is whatever the heck local means, um, but this is a locally grown by farmers and ranchers who own the packing plant, yada, 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 yada. How much value is there to those folks on the consumer end? Well, l let me just use CAB as an example. I mean, that's, yeah. that's what we're talking about, right? The story, the, the quality, the consistency, the eating experience, the story behind certified Angus beef. Um, now you're, you're, just, you're just, it's the same thing. Only it's, you know, traceability, uh, you know, shaking hands with the people that own the, the company, the farmers and ranchers uh, owning the, the plant or owning the operations part, or at least owning the meat. Um, you know, I, I think that we, I think that you see that 
that portion uh, there being being good. Now the the other thing is is when we start to talk about dollars and cents, uh, <laughs> while we talk about the premiums that we could get selling the meat, I would be remiss to not mention the dollars that we at the ranch leave on the table every day if we don't use steroid implants and commercial calves and then not market them as NHTC. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. There's 50 bucks a head um, for NHTC. And if you don't implant the calves on the cow, then you need to market them as NHTC because they didn't have steroid implants. Right. Um, you know, and, and, and horns, there's a new study that came out. Horns are worth 20 bucks a head at the, when you're selling a calf. Um, the, uh, deduction. They're yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> my, my Hereford breeders are tickled right now that uh, they can quote Dr. Dan Thompson. Yeah. <laughs> Added um, value. Yeah. But, but, but just so many of those, BQA, being BQA certified in superior livestock to market, uh, just recently they found out that's that's worth $8 a head when you market your calves. Yep. Uh, we, we're, we're leaving money all over the place. Um, there's probably 100 to $200 sitting there. And then when you start to think about some of the other things we can do further down the chain, I just, I'm so excited about this industry. I mean, we are going to, we're going to see so many cool things happen and it's really time to, we should really be pumped to be a part of it. Well, I, I think that's something that we forget about quite often in the beef industry. We are eternal optimists when it comes to breeding time and calving time and we're eternal pessimists when it comes time to sell those cattle because we start seeing everything that's wrong in the world and we start seeing you know whatever the case may be and and there's a lot of things that have to go into capturing those premiums or minimizing any discounts or whatever the case may be but the first step is having a group that's big enough that you can sell into the supply chain whether that be through the local barn or direct or on a video or whatever the case may be, but you've got to be able to somehow, you and or your neighbors, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you've got to be able to put together a load of calves that are similar sized, similar genetic makeup, and tell folks all these things that they have or have not had done to them uh, in terms everything of you, NHTC and everything. Everything you mentioned in there. Um, evenness was about $40 a head. Oh, yeah. If those cattle were up and down, they were deducted 40 bucks a head. Yep. Um, uh, genetics now, you know, with the, uh, the genetic code on superiors, there's a, that group of, of progressive genetics that if you use certain genetics, uh, that was 25 bucks a head. Yeah. And we've seen that with our own customers that are part of that SPG, SPG program. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it rings a bell. It is significant. And, and we see it with feed yards calling me saying, where can we buy your customers cattle? I mean, it's, it's real. And, and all of these things, um, non-implanted, whatever the case may be, if you do it and then don't tell anybody or don't put together a group that can represent that as a group, uh, consistently, yeah, it's it's money left on the table, and and it's probably some quite often the difference between profit and loss. Yep, yep, and 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 big profit. I mean, yeah. if you can squeeze a hundred bucks a head. Oh man, come on! I mean, and and it's right there. Use the right genetics. Be BQA certified. Uh, you know, precondition them. I, I mean, back forty five was was forty five bucks a head. I mean, and and a lot of feed yards today would say VAC sixty is even better. Um, yep, so absolutely. Well, we have covered a bunch of territory on here, and I know you've got um, uh, plenty of other information that you could talk about. Where all can folks, if they want to hear more information from you, um, you're still doing Doc Talk. Yep, yep, we still do Doc Talk. Thirteenth um, season. Wow. Um, We'll hit 600 episodes this year. I'll be darned. Um, Good for you. And, uh, and we're and we locked up the sponsorship through 2025, so y'all are stuck with me. Good. Uh, 
for a while. But uh, Doc Talk is at www.doctalktv.com, and Pack uh, is at Pack DVMs. It's got an S on it. Dot uh, okay. com. But uh, we have a website there. Uh, I still have my Iowa State, but uh, I, I'm uh, I'm kind of on the, what we call a phased uh, retirement type platform. I'm I'm moving towards uh, more time in the in the field and more time with producers and good. and um, excited about it. Well, you're good at that, and and I think that's that's valuable to anybody that gets to work with you that way. So. We appreciate you being on here, as always. I appreciate your dedication to the beef industry and, and sharing some of this information, knowledge, in a in a practical way with, with the producers who hope, hopefully can implement it. Well, thank you uh, for all you do, Matt. You bet. You bet. Well, we'll talk to you again soon, and thanks for being here. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for Practically Ranching, brought to you by Dale Bank Sangus. We just opened our private treaty bull offering this spring, so if you're in the market for practical, profitable genetics to fit your needs, we'd love to visit with you. Contact Matt today at 620-583-4305 or email us at mattperrier at dalebanks.com. God bless. We'll see you again in two weeks here on Practically Ranching.